I'm Dr. Omar Khan. I'm Dr. Shannon Gowland. I'm Dr. Tiffany Dursey. And welcome to Vet Sessions. Welcome back to Vet Sessions. My name is Dr. Tiffany Dursey, and it's so great to have everyone listening today. Today in-house, I have Dr. Emma Stacy. Hi, Emma. Hello. It's so great to have you here today. Thank you for having me. We are going to talk about everything pathology insofar as how can we get the best out of our pathologist, our clinical pathologist, by submitting very high quality samples. Um, and again, um, talking to Emma, I hope that we can learn a little bit more about what we can do better to help our pathologist get uh, get good answers for our cases. So before we jump in, Emma, um, tell me a little bit about yourself, because I know you uh, graduated not too long ago, um, and I'd love to know a little bit about how it is that you ended up in the pathology department. Sure. Um, So I graduated from the OVC back in 2022, so not that long ago. And while I was a vet student there, I did some summer research in the pathology department. And at the time, I thought I wanted to pursue oncology because I really found cancer an interesting disease. But after working in the path department, I sort of discovered that the diagnostic process was what I really liked and being able to look at the results from different diagnostic tests, looking at cells under the microscope, it sort of became my passion. And then all through vet school, that's what I wanted to do. And then now here I am as a path resident. Wow, that's fantastic. And then uh, what year of your PATH residency are you in? I'm in my second year. Second year of three years, is yes, that correct? correct? Okay, excellent. And then you're doing a concurrent, what they call a DVSC. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So that sounds like a lot. So um, pretty pretty interesting. Um, and more clinical pathology than anatomic pathology, because for those listeners that don't know, there are two different types of pathologists, right? Yes. Anatomic, which is kind of more um, dealing with, I guess, uh, postmortems and tumors and that type of stuff versus um, clinical pathology, which is more sort of microscope. Um, so what, what kind of samples do you deal with on a daily basis? So clinical pathology, sometimes we think of it as like liquids and solids, maybe, but we look okay. at blood, um, urine, different kinds of fluids fluids as well as fine needle aspirates. So mostly we're doing cytology and we also look at um, biochemistries. Excellent. Okay. So you're, so you're dealing with a lot of the, um, like you said, microscope work and um, looking at slides and um, all fluids. Loving Mm -hmm. it. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. So why don't we dive into our topic here, which is how can we get the best out of our samples? Um, Where would you like to start? So I think one of the most important things is giving a good history. So that's the first thing that we look at. We look at the signalment of the animal and we look at the history. So including a full signalment, so the breed, if you know the breed of the animal, if it's castrated or not, um, that helps. Sometimes we don't even get that information and the age can also have an impact on our interpretation. So that information is important. And then what you include in the history. So the ideal sort of history is not going to be too long. It's not going to be too short. It's going to be just right. And it's going to include a lot of pertinent information. Um, so in terms of what that information includes, it sort of depends on what sample you're submitting. Right. Um, so sometimes like if you're submitting a hematology sample and you're getting a path review and a blood smear, sort of knowing why you've taken the CBC and what the reason is. Sometimes it can be just for pre-surgical blood work, but sometimes there's a reason. If this animal has had a history of cytopenia, that's good to know. Or if there's been changes noted previously, that kind of information is always helpful. Um, as well as where the sample came from. 
why the sample was taken and sort of what you're hoping to find out from us can also be really helpful. So so the last um, bit there is is interesting is, for instance, could you say I'm trying to rule out X disease or I'm wondering about, you know, why is the dog drinking more or peeing more or that mm-hmm. kind of thing? So um, in, in framing that in, in a question, that would be helpful. Yeah. So I think like the ideal history sort of starts with the presenting complaint of the animal in like a very brief form. So we don't necessarily need to know like the TPR from that animal because we're not examining them. You've already done the exam. So tell us the most important things you noted. Was the animal dehydrated? Um, Was it clinically doing fine, but you noticed something? Like that kind of information is really helpful. And then if it's a fine needle aspirate from an organ, is there a reason you aspirated it? Was the spleen like diffusely enlarged on your ultrasound or was there multiple nodules? So the knowing that kind of information can change our interpretation as well as what you're trying to rule out. So if you took an x-ray um, and you saw like a mottled looking lung or liver or spleen and you sampled it, do you want us to tell you, is it neoplasia? Is it fungal? What are you thinking? Like you clinically have the animal in front of you and we're just a tool that you're using. So the more information that you tell us, the more we can help you. Um, that's really great advice. Um, n- now tell me, is it uh, a good idea at times to even um, take photos? Like, so, you know, photos of lumps or lesions, mm-hmm. or is that um, not advised? We definitely like getting images. It depends sort of where you're submitting your samples to, because I think different platforms have different capabilities with images, but images are always welcome, even just describing a mass. So if you sampled a mass on a dog and you're telling us how big it is. Is it two by three centimeters, one millimeter in size? What did it feel like when you palpated it? Was it ulcerated? Where was it? Um, How long has it been there? Is it growing? That kind of information can be really helpful. Even what it looked like when you aspirated it. Did liquid come out of it? Was there nothing that you really saw on the slide? That that can be helpful information. Even the technique that you used to aspirate it. What, What size needle did you use? Oh, okay. How much pressure did you apply? Like that information can help too. Okay, excellent. Um, so um, in, in terms of different um, types of samples that are submitted, um, why don't we go through some of the um, fluids and um, aspirates and um, and maybe you can make some comments. Um, so since um, we already started talking about fine needle aspirates and, uh, and lumps, um, I'd love to get some, some information. You've touched on a few things, um, but you know what can we do insofar as making sure that we get a really good fine needle aspirate or um, you know when... When is it not a good idea to send that sample um, or or to send that sample? So I think what really impacts it is what the mass feels like. So if you have sort of a softer mass, you might get more exfoliation of cells than if you have a really tough, hard mass. So some of those soft tissue tumors, they tend to not exfoliate as well. They can, depending on what type they are. But I would say in general, like very generalized, they won't exfoliate as well as something like a lymph node with lymphoma. Like those samples can be so thick that we almost can't even see the individual cells. So knowing sort of, even if you're just palpating a mass and having an idea of what you think it could be, that can impact your technique. So whether you're using sort of the woodpecker technique where you're just using the tip of the needle and poking something and then aspirating that onto a slide versus actually pulling back on a syringe when you take a sample. So sort of assessing how the mass feels and then choosing what technique you use can help. Um, as well as knowing if something's like a bloody organ. Like, so if there's a lot of blood, you might get more contamination. It makes it a little harder. Um, One issue we see a lot with fine needle aspirates can be clotting artifact. Mm. So if you have a really bloody sample, so this happens with spleens a lot because they're basically a bag of blood. But when you aspirate a spleen, we get a lot of blood on the slide. We get clotting and cells can get trapped in those clots and it becomes harder for us to interpret them. So um, at the OVC hospital, for example, they will flush their needles with EDTA 
huh. which helps to prevent some of that clotting. Um, so that's an option or just making more slides. So sometimes the first poke will be bloodier, sometimes the last poke will be, but sending multiple. So depending on what lab you're sending your slides to, they have a maximum number of sites and slides per submission. So maximize it because your pathologist will look at everything you send. Okay. Um, and that's so sometimes advice. one slide will have a lot more than others. Like sometimes it's just out of the 10 slides, one slide was diagnostic, but if you'd only sent nine, you might not have gotten your diagnosis. So you might as well maximize what you're sending. Okay. That's, that's great advice. And now, um, you talked about the woodpecker technique where you stick a needle into the mass and then you kind of like, like a woodpecker, you keep kind of, um, putting mm-hmm. it in and out, um, and then using a syringe to blow the cells on a slide versus, um, having the needle attached to the syringe and then sort of plunging back and forth and then, um, putting the, uh, the sample on a slide. Um, do you feel that one is superior or again, it sort of depends and you're sort of assessing, um, you know, what the sample looks like and again, too much or too little. I think it depends on the mass or what you're sampling. Because, for example, if you were to use the technique where you're pulling back on a syringe on a lymph node, you're going to get too many cells most of the time. Whereas if you have sort of a tough mass that you think might be like a sarcoma or something like that, Mm -hmm. pulling back might be a better technique to get those cells. Okay. Like I've often said to the students too, that it's really important that, you know, once you actually put the, um, the sample on the slide, um, that you need to look at it physically with the naked eye and say like, is there anything even on my slide? Um, so do you recommend that, that the clinician submitting, um, should they take a look at it under the microscope first, or should they make sure that it's an adequate sample or what kind of, um, advice do you have for us there? I think that that's a good idea. Um, it's sort of almost like a quality control slide where you're taking a look at what you 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 did in clinic. And you can stand, send that slide with your other slides too. You can stain it in clinic with DiffQuick and include it um, with the other slides you send off, especially if you think that there's diagnostic material on it. Um, but it does it is a good idea to take a look sometimes and see if you got anything on your slide. But there are times where we receive slides that to the naked eye looks like there's nothing on there, but mm-hmm. there still can be okay. some stuff. Okay. So it's okay. Um, so um, stained versus unstained. Um, my understanding is that you like a little bit of both. So don't just stain them all and send them. You want some unstained. Is that right? Yeah. So we, I would say in general, we prefer them to be unstained because at the lab that you're sending them to, they'll be stained with a specific stain. And generally that's like right games of stain. And that's okay. sort of what we're trained to look at. And there are some differences between that stain and DiffQuick, which is what most clinics have. Um, and so for us, there are certain things that we can see with Reikimza that we might say is a little bit better or you can see more detail, but it depends. Um, and we do need to know how to look at both kinds of stains. So if okay. you did have a diff quick stain slide, there's no problem sending that along with it. Um, but I would recommend the rest are left unstained. Okay. Um, the one thing that I have heard before, and I don't know if this is a myth, but, um, you know, again, sometimes you'll, you're, you're poking a, a lump to get a sample, um, and then maybe you hit a, a blood vessel in the skin, um, and so your sample is really bloody. Um, and so I've been told uh, before, and I guess, again, it sort of depends on what type of lump you're talking about, um, that, again, you maybe want to sample, take a few samples and see, is it everyone bloody? Uh, because with bloody samples, it can sometimes be hard to find cells. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With bloody samples, it can be harder just because the few cells that are there can get sort of enmeshed in all this clotted material, and then you can't s- assess their morphology as well as you would otherwise. But sometimes some masses are just naturally bloody, and we can still right. find some cells in them. So worst case scenario, you send a sample that's bloody, and it comes back as a limited sample that's non-diagnostic. Right. But we do try to tell you 
if we did see any unusual cells. We might not be able to make a diagnosis, but we can tell you that we did see a few, and we might recommend taking a surgical biopsy and sending it for histopathology with our anatomic counterparts. Okay, yeah, and I have um, seen that before come back on the on the pathology report saying like either inconclusive sample or, you know, confirm with the biopsy. And I guess in that way, then you can look at the architecture of the um, the sample and that type of thing. Um, so um, if, if we can talk about a couple of sort of common um, lumps that we see here in general practice, um, you know, the first one would be a suspected lipoma. So lipoma typically are benign, um, often, you know, they're soft um, and well circumscribed. And so, you know, again, uh, really easy to do finding a aspirate to diagnose that. Um, I, um, any comments on, so, you know, often they exfoliate well, and so we'll get a pretty decent sample and you can almost like physically see from far away some fat droplets. Um, how do you like to approach your lipoma slides? Um, is it a good idea in practice? Should we be staining them? Should we be sending them? Should we um, just diagnose it from the naked eye by seeing the fat? Um, any thoughts about that? Because I've heard lots of different things in, in, in practice on how people are diagnosing lipomas. Mm-hmm. So I've heard it said a lot that um, on a slide, it'll look greasy and it gives you sort of a hint that it might be a lipoma, which I would say like a lot of the time that's probably true, but there are instances where you can have like a mast cell tumor hiding out in a lipoma Mm. or something else. And that is a limitation with cytology because you're sticking a very small needle into potentially a large mass. You're only getting a small portion of that sample. So when we write a report for a lipoma, it's always the frustrating waffly comment from the pathologist that says Mm. something like consistent (laughs) with a lipoma, or sampling right. of subcutaneous fat or something yes, like that. I've like seen we, that. <laughs> we never quite say, yes, this we is want a lipoma. Def- yeah, exactly. We want you to commit. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know. You want us to commit, but we're like, we don't know. We weren't there. Right. We don't we didn't see every single cell. So we do tend to give a kind of waffly comment, but mm-hmm. um, a lipoma tends to have a very specific appearance on cytology. And there's been times when we've gotten a sample that only has two or three adipocytes and nothing else. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the time in the Sample preparation when it's being stained, the adipocytes or the fat cells can get washed away. Okay. Um, and so sometimes they, even if they looked greasy when you took the sample, by the time it's stained and looked at by the pathologist, a lot of those cells might have washed away, which also adds to why we're being so waffly about it. Mm-hmm. We're really only seeing three cells, but sometimes seeing nothing in a way kind of rules out other things because there are certain kinds of tumors that, like, for example, a mast cell tumor, you will see a lot of mast cells in most subcutaneous yes. or or cutaneous mast cell tumors. Like it's a very um, straightforward diagnosis a lot of the time. And so sometimes if you're not seeing those, um, it makes you more confident that, you know, maybe it's not that. However, we, we're never sure. So mm-hmm. so from a teaching perspective, like here, because we're working at the Primary Health Care Center um, at the Ontario Veterinary College, um, uh, and so again, teaching our students uh, to deal with lipomas, um, typically, you know, again, look at it with the naked eye, do you, you know, what's your first uh, um, impression, uh, but then following up by first looking at the, um, under the microscope um, without staining and seeing, you know, what it kind of looks like and usually just looks like a bunch of grease. Um, and then we'll go ahead and we'll diff quick it. Um, what do you do differently at the lab? with the the do you do the same thing or you're saying you're using the right gim sustain so yeah so it's um a right gim sustain which is it's similar to diff quick so it has like multiple colors in it and it does give a similar appearance but um it's done by like an automatic stainer so the Mm. slides get received by the lab so this is the animal health lab which is affiliated with the obc right um and so those slides get received and they go through an automatic stainer um, and then they are cover slipped and then by then we look at them 
Okay. And so is there a superior way to confirm a lipoma um, with, with um, either stained or unstained? Or I, I know we get questions about, you know, should you stain it? And I think the comment that you made before is that typically we'll look at it um, under the microscope, we'll see a bunch of fat cells, um, and then we'll go ahead and stain it. And then our, you know, again, many a time that greasy fat kind of, you know, rolls off the slide and you might be left with nothing, but at least you're not seeing, um, any, um, abnormal cells. So it's more about confirming there's no abnormal cells rather than normal cells. Is that mm-hmm. your I would say that's the case. I think staining it is a good idea and you're really staining it just to make sure that you're, you're almost just confirming what you're already suspicious of. You saw right. a lot of like greasy material on the slide. You think it's a lipoma. You're just staining it to confirm that it's not something else. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So then that's what getting back to your history. So, so saying, mm-hmm. Hey, you know, pathologist, this is what my impression is. I want to rule out a lipoma versus other. My suspicion is so, so, so again, getting back to that great idea for the clinician um, or whoever's submitting to say, Hey, my clinical impression is X and, you know, rule out other. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So sounds good. Um, so you started talking a little bit about mouse cell tumors. Um, so, um, we do see them here and there and, you know, again, they can almost look like anything. So again, another reason why we, we, we should always consider, um, doing fine needle aspirates. Um, tell me, um, any tips on mast cell tumors, um, and, um, slide preparation or samples or, um, and I don't know if you want to comment on different grades of mast cell tumors and yeah. Yeah. So I think like you said, they can look like anything. So if you have an older dog, it has a bunch of lumps, you might as well sample them if you're able to um, and see what they come back as. And they can come back as mast cells and mast cells are notoriously difficult to assess um, on cytology for the grade. Mm-hmm. They can look very variable, This the amount of granules they have. So they're sort of, the classic mast cell is like a round cell with these like really nice purpley granules and it has a very characteristic appearance and for us we can we call it a 10x diagnosis because we don't even have to go to higher power oh, okay. to look at it just on the 10 power yeah you can see it, it in a well granulated mast cell tumor that's mm-hmm. well exfoliated you can be relatively confident at a low power and then of course we'll go closer and then you start to see other features like there's often eosinophils that are there there can be like collagenous matrix and other features present but the granularity can vary. And sometimes you have these poorly granulated mast cells that can be hard to identify. Um, and the granules sometimes don't stain as well with DIFQUIC, for example, oh, okay. as compared to with right Ginza. Um, so that can make it a little bit difficult to assess as well. But I think ultimately for giving it a grade, at least my understanding is that it requires histopathological assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall, generally speaking, I think if it's got a lot of what we call like criteria of malignancy and it's not well granulated, then we would be concerned it's a higher grade mast cell tumor. Also, depending on the location of it, it can vary. Okay. Um, and so, um, so typically, um, um, good to use sort of the, uh, right gim sustain and again, confirming that it's a mast cell tumor, but knowing that, um, insofar as, you know, um, clinically dealing with these, uh, mast cell tumors, um, histopathology might be required, um, you know, before surgery or treatment or, or mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Um, so how about lymph nodes? Um, lymph nodes are always interesting to aspirate for me. Um, uh, and, um, any, any, any tips on, um, good quality samples from, from lymph nodes or anything special that we need to know about them. Maybe just making sure that we're holding them tight. And um, (laughs) sometimes we're using an ultrasound, but um, it can be difficult. Yeah, I think lymph nodes, I I haven't 
aspirated that many of them myself, but I've looked mm-hmm. at a fair number of slides of lymph nodes and they can be really thick preparations sometimes, mm. especially when they're coming from a dog that does have something like a lymphoma because those lymph nodes are enlarged, they're highly cellular. Um, and sometimes the cells can be a little bit fragile. So the way you prepare them, you want to be sort of gentle with them. The woodpecker technique, I think, uh, is better for something like an enlarged lymph okay. node. Um, and you want to be gentle with the cells because if they are neoplastic, they can be a little bit more fragile. Um, so this sort of classic squash prep, I think, is fine for lymph nodes. Okay. Um, but you want to like get a thin sample if you can. Like You want it to be nicely spread across the slide because it also impacts how things stain. And a poorly stained, highly dense sample from a lymph node will look like lymphoma to anyone. And so oh, that makes it okay. hard for us sometimes to assess. So we want them to be well stained and that kind of relies on them being thinly spread. Um, and lymph nodes are really interesting because they can look like a lot of different things. And same with lymphomas, they're very variable. And sometimes we'll have samples where it's almost like on the line for us where we're like, there are increased numbers of these intermediate to large lymphocytes, but not enough for us to call it lymphoma outright. Mm. And then sometimes you'll get, again, a waffly report back from the pathologist <laughs> that recommends additional <laughs> testing because we're not sure and we don't want to commit to that diagnosis. I like that you're dog. admitting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with waffling, but I mean, we try to give you as much advice as we can. We're like, yeah. well, yeah. I mean, it's not it's not black and white, unfortunately. Yeah, and I think that's the, the frustrating thing as a clinician. And, and you know, again, medicine is not black and white. We you know we all know that, and um, so I don't know why it would be any different with pathology. Um, but um, but you know, it's interesting, like with the um, the, the thick slides, because I have to say myself that sometimes you know you're excited when you get this amazing sample from a lymph node, and then you know kind of you stick it on mm-hmm. the slide, and then it's like this massive, you know, it's like the size of a dime, and then you're spreading it, and you're thinking, okay, yeah. So I can see how um, that's really good advice. Make sure that it's a little bit thinner. You know, if you have to use several several slides and mm-hmm. maybe more the woodpecker technique than the, uh, the, the yeah. syringe aspirin. And if you do do sort of like the squash prep or even if you have a little bit of material left over on one slide, yeah. you could submit that slide too. The slide okay. you spread it with, that that helps. Um, other things that are useful, um, I would say like making sure you label the, sl- the side of the slide that the mm. material is on because it gets put through a lot of labs. It'll go through an automatic stainer and sometimes it gets um, stained on the wrong side. Oh, if, interesting. If, if the material is sure. on the other side. Sure. It's sort of like an automated process. Right. Um, yeah, yeah that's so that's point. helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just saying like which lymph node it was from, if there's multiple lymph nodes, making sure that your samples are labeled properly too can help. That's probably really good advice. Like, you know, again, something that you'd think would be really obvious, but you know, with the, uh, the, the slides, there's always like a frosted side and an unfrosted side. And there's, um, if you read it, 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 it usually um, tells you which side is up, but we don't always put the sample on the upside. Mm-hmm. So that is a very, very good point. So maybe just writing on there, which is up and which, you know, which, where we're actually sampling it from. Yeah, so. it can help, especially like at some labs, um, that do a lot of digital cytology now because now your pathologist mm. isn't even connected physically to your lab sometimes. So they'll be looking at an image on their computer and they'll see it and they'll say this it doesn't look right. Maybe it's on the wrong side. And then they have to have that sample rescanned at the lab. And so it'll take longer to get your result back. Interesting. Excellent. Um, any other lumps or bumps that, um, that you like to talk about before we move on to different fluids? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think those are like the main ones, lipomas, mast cell tumors, the old like sebaceous adenoma. Oh, right. Those those are pretty common. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. 
But I mean, we can give you a pretty confident diagnosis on a lot of those kinds of oh, yeah. routine lumps, which is nice. Yeah, fantastic. And I think, um, you know, again, the fine needle aspirates, um, you know, we always talk about the limitations of them that again, like you're, you know, it's where you're pointing that little needle. So um, understanding that, but, um, but again, like we've gotten some, some great results uh, by doing that and then, you know, potentially having to avoid going further to do um, a biopsy, but obviously there's times that a biopsy is, is required. Mm-hmm. So excellent. Okay. Um, so, um, so looking at um, other fluids that we submit, um, so um, any tips on submission of blood? So, um, you know, should we be sending in blood smear? Should we make the blood smear? Should we wait and let you make the blood smear? Is there any, any comments regarding handling of blood products? Yeah. So this is like my soapbox, but Ooh, I think, <laughs> I think that you should always make a blood smear at the same time that you collect the sample. Okay. I think it's really important, and I know it's not always part of our CBCs and routine practice. There's not a lot of time. You're between appointments. It's hard to make a blood smear, but it can really help. I mean, a lot of the time, if there's nothing abnormal in your CBC, you probably won't look at the blood smear, but if there is something abnormal, you're going to wish that you had made a blood smear. Mm -hmm. And it is really useful um, for it to be from the fresh sample because some labs, when you send your blood in, Um, They will make a blood smear depending on the lab and it'll be part of the assessment, but other labs you have to request it and it's like an additional cost. Mm -hmm. Um, But making it like with the fresh blood helps because it avoids some of the artifactual change. So if you have the time when you're taking a sample to just quickly make a blood smear and and then send it along with it, it can really help because if it does get reviewed by a pathologist, having made the sample at the time of collection will avoid some artifactual change. So for example... Um, some of the shape changes in red blood cells. Um, in older blood samples, you'll see more of those. You can see things that look like toxic change in your neutrophils that maybe weren't present if it was a fresh sample. Interesting. There can be increased numbers of what look like banned neutrophils. So we might be telling you there's like marked acute inflammation in a patient. Yeah, and the right. actual fact is it's just an old blood sample. So mm. making a blood smear at the time of collection can really help with that. And it's, I mean, relatively easy to do. And certainly here, um, teaching hospital, we should be able to, we've got enough people around, we should probably do that. So um, one of the things that I find is that, you know, again, um, it can be sometimes, you know, um, difficult obtaining blood samples from, you know, moving cats and dogs and that kind of thing. And so the one thing that I notice a lot from ClinPath is that, um, you know, our platelet count will be off um, and that blood smear, right? We, we need to confirm our platelet uh, count because mm-hmm. again, it might be wrong on the on the, the actual machine, right? Yeah. So that's one of the first things when we evaluate a blood smear is we go to the feathered edge and we look for platelet clumps, especially if there's a reported thrombocytopenia. And right. I say a lot of the time it is just platelet clumping and it's not always just in the feathered edge. You can look in like what we call the butt of the smear on the other side um, or even in the body of the smear. Sometimes you'll see little aggregates of platelets. And so if we see enough of that, we'll tell you that the automated platelet count is probably unreliable um, due to previous like pre-analytical clumping which has to do with the venipuncture technique right usually. but I, I like your soapbox because I think um, uh, I agree with you because I think also what happens is as a clinician is that you know I put in a request for um, you know a CBC um, and then um, you know either the platelet count will be low or there'll be some some changes on there um, and then you know I'm not looking at those results potentially until the next day um, and then you know one of the technicians will then have to scoop the sample out of the the, the fridge and see if they can make a, a blood smear and then and like you said, you know, by then um, there could be some artifacts. So, so 
had we just even just made the blood smear, maybe you didn't even look at it yet, um, you know, stick it in the um, in a little slide box um, and kind of hold on to it. Um, do those need to be refrigerated, uh, the, the slides? Or so tell me about that. You should not put blood smears or anything with cells on it, like a slide, in the fridge because Good. the temperature in the fridge will cause the cells to lice. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And that would that be across the board, even say with um, um, submissions for fine needle aspirates and whatnot, should those stay out of the fridge? Mm-hmm. So anything that you have on a slide should not go in the fridge, but okay. your actual physical like blood tubes can be kept in the fridge. Okay. And is there an expiry date for slides that are outside? I mean, I guess that's a tough one, but for instance, like it would be reasonable if I did a blood smear, um, don't put it in the fridge. Um, say I wanted to look at it two or three days later. Any concerns about that? No, I think that would be fine. And one thing that's really important is making sure that you dry it quickly once you make it. Ah, okay. So if you have a fan set up or if you have a dedicated technician who's willing to flap their arms to dry, dry it really I've quickly. I've seen a lot of that in this clinic. Yeah, <laughs> that's really helpful because you're okay. avoiding certain like peculocytes that might show up. So like crenated cells can happen because of actual things going on in the animal. But a lot of the time that's a drying artifact and there's other hmm. changes like that that we can see. So we recommend making dry. a smear fresh and drying it as quickly as you can. Okay. And then along those lines, should we be diff quicking it right away or would it be reasonable to say, look at, we may not need it. Um, um, we'll put it to the side and if we need to just stain it the next day, is there any concerns? Yeah, about that? I think as long as you're drying it quickly, like the actual blood smear, it's fine to wait a day or two to, to stain it. I don't think it would make a big difference. Okay. And then um, any comments, um, should you be looking at a blood smear with every CPC? Um, I think a lot of the time, and from a practical aspect, I think in clinics, like you're very busy, there's a lot going on. Even if you have the time to go through the CBC and biochemistry and then to have to do a blood smear review, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. I think it's a nice idea to do it for every single sample, but I don't know how realistic it is. But I do think it's important, especially when there's abnormalities. If you have like a thrombocytopenia, mm-hmm. you want to confirm if there's clumping. Even if you have an anemia and you're not sure, it might be regenerative, but you don't know, is it is this animal actively bleeding? Is this hemorrhage? Or do we have like hemolysis? Is this an IMHA? It's hard to tell without looking at a blood smear. A blood smear can give you a lot of information about sort of what's going on to cause an anemia. Or if you have a marked leukocytosis and you're wondering like, what are these cells? It's telling you they're all lymphocytes or they're all monocytes, but you're not sure what they are. And you look at them and they look really weird. You can get a lot of information from looking at the morphology, but on a routine day-to-day basis, I don't know that you necessarily have to look at them all. It's just nice to make one so that you have it if you do need it. Okay, and I think that's great advice. So so basically we can um, go ahead and run run the CBC if you're doing it in-house or maybe, you know, again, sending it out, but at least either send it with them a, a fresh dried um, uh, slide that's unstained um, and then it's there when you need it so that, you know, again, a day or two days later, you're not having to deal with all these artifacts. And then again, this big question mark about what's what's happening. So mm-hmm. I like that. That's, that's really great advice. Excellent. Okay, so how about um, a different type of fluid? Um, urine, any... Any comments about um, about handling urine, um, submitting urine, um, anything there that you have advice for? Yeah, I think we kind of consider urine to be this forgotten liquid sometimes. People are so. always focused on the CBC, the biochemistry, but they forget about the urine. But mm-hmm. it can tell you a lot of information. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's important to know how it was, like, say how you collected it when you're submitting right. it, because it does make a difference with interpretation. It Was it a cystocentesis and mm-hmm. there's bacteria? That's a little concerning. Whereas if it was a free catch sample and there's a little bit of bacteria, we might not want to overinterpret that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, 
if it is a free catch sample, was it collected off of a surface? Because sometimes you're mm-hmm. trying to get a sample from an animal all day and then the cat finally pees, but inside of its little kennel. Right. And then you collect it with a syringe and depending on what that kennel was cleaned with, that can affect some of the results you might see on a dipstick. Sure. So that kind of information is good to keep in mind too. Um, a lot of clinics have um, sort of automated ways of looking at the sediment that'll flag things for you, which is really handy, but it's, I think, important to still look at it as the clinician and make sure that what the machine is calling a crystal or what the machine is calling a bacteria actually is according to you. Yeah, and you know, that's a, a whole interesting topic about AI and how mm-hmm. that will um, impact your 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 area of expertise there. So that'll be, um, yeah, maybe we can touch on that in, in a minute. So um, insofar as um, urine collection goes, I know often, um, if possible, we'll tell people, you know, first, first morning sample for many different reasons, uh, particularly because it's probably the most concentrated. Um, and then we have people bring them in all different sites of um, uh, containers and maybe they put them in the fridge and maybe they don't. Um, if someone's collecting at home a free catch sample, any comments on that? Um, should it go in the fridge? Should it not? Um, how long do they have before, you know, they bring it into the clinic and that type of things? Because I know a lot of times it will kind of crystallize. Urine will kind of mm-hmm. crystallize. Yeah. I think the recommendation generally is um, to do a first of the morning sample because you want to, you're assessing the concentrating ability when you're looking at specific gravity. And so if you have a first of the morning sample, it's going to be the most concentrated. So it'll give you the best measure of that. Um, and then generally, I think the advice is to keep it in the fridge until you bring it in, but you want to bring it in as quickly as you can. Okay, excellent. And then what about with urine protein creatinine ratio? I know there's been some comments about, um, you know, should we um, pool first morning samples together to submit? Do you have any thoughts about that? I honestly don't know okay. for that one. Yeah, I think, I've, like, I, I, as I recall, I think there's, like, you know, again, like, some people will say when you're doing your protein creatinine ratio, like, one sample would be fine, but some some best better practice is to, like, combine three mm-hmm. samples, and, and so you can put the uh, take the first one in the morning, you put it in the freezer, you take the second one, you put it in the freezer, and then you take the third one, and you combine them together. So there's all these different sort of comments about that. So, uh, but then nonetheless, of course, with, with urine, is making sure that it does go in the fridge. If you're not bringing it in right away so it doesn't crystallize. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Okay, fantastic. So um, any other body fluids? Um, I guess, we, you know, we can talk about things like um, uh, fluid that, you know, um, comes from the abdomen. So like ascites, um, that type yeah. of fluid or thoracic fluids. I don't know if you want to lump mm-hmm. them together. So no. we, <laughs> we see fluids from all kinds of places. But yeah, pleural fluid, abdominal fluid are things that we see. And so the major things there are what did it look like when you collected the sample? Because mm-hmm. sometimes we don't actually see the fluid. It's written for us. Um, at the AHL by the technicians, they'll report, you know, the turbidity of it. It Was it clear? Was it opaque? What color was it? Um, and they do a cell count and a protein for us, and that helps us to, to tell if it's a transidate or an exudate. Okay. Um, and then we'll look at it cytologically. And depending on the cell count, it'll sort of affect how they prepare slides because there's different ways to do it. You can do what we call like a cytocentrifuge preparation, which we tend to do on fluids that have low cellularity because we want to concentrate the cells so we can see as many of them as we can. Um, you can also do sort of direct smears. You can do line preps. A lot of it depends on the cellularity of, of what you're looking at. And I know with like CSF, for example, if you're ever taking a cerebral spinal fluid sample, they, Mm -hmm. it's a really low protein substance. So adding some of the patient's own serum to it can help the cells to live longer. Oh, interesting. So if you're sending it out for some reason, um, then that can help. Okay. Preservation. Um, Would you, would you, or could you comment on what is the difference between a transidate and an exudate? Sure. So um, a transidate is generally like a low cell count, low protein fluid. And so an exudate is the opposite. It's high cellularity and it can have higher protein. 
Um, and so transidates usually just pre- like passively lost fluid that's going across into the, the body space, whereas an exudate would be more of like a purulent kind of material if it was neutrophilic, for example. Okay. And then I've heard of a modified transidate before. Mm-hmm. A modified transidate has a low cell count, but has high protein. Okay. Okay. And that's good to know in terms of also looking at different disease states, because often there's um, something specific about that with um, with particular diseases. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Um, and then when we're collecting fluid, either from, um, from the thoracic cavity or the abdominal cavity, should we be making any slides that we submit with that? Can we just um, spin it down and send that sample? Do you have any sort of comments on that? I think sometimes clinicians will make their own slides and look at it. Um, in-house just to see, especially if you're in sort of like an emergent situation and you want to know like this animal recently had abdominal surgery and we're worried about a septic abdomen, you can look under the microscope and see neutrophils and maybe even see bacteria and get an answer quicker than you would sending it out to a pathologist. And I don't think there's anything wrong with doing that. Um, I think it's good to send out what you made and the material for a a confirmation from a pathologist. Um, but I think it's like fair to look in clinic too. Okay. And then again, getting back to your history and, and saying, hey, like this is my problem list. This is my signalment. This is what I'm thinking. Can you rule this or that out? Because mm-hmm. obviously, um, yeah. And I guess we always think that pathologists are sort of like magicians, which they are. And uh, <laughs> we give them no information and, and expect them to diagnose and, and, and tell us what to do. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, so tell me, um, you mentioned a little bit about like AI technology. Um, do you have um, any comments at this point or any um, exposure to AI technology and how do you feel like that will impact your your area of expertise? Mm -hmm. I think that it's gonna be a big part of pathology going forward. I think a lot of it is sort of in development still. I think it's very new to the field but there are tools that are being developed in different areas. Um, At the pathology conference this past year um, in October there was a session sort of on digital pathology, which is mm. sort of where it's moving towards, which is just sort of whole slide scanning. So a lot of pathologists actually work from home and they're just looking at images on their computer rather really? than having a microscope these days. So some of the bigger um, commercial diagnostic labs, I think over 90% of their their slides are being looked at pathologists remotely. So wow. I could be on a beach someday looking at slides, which sounds that really sounds good. sounds lovely. <laughs> sounds really good right now. <laughs> I might um, come join you in yeah. DBSC. <laughs> But um, so that's That's really cool. Um, But there's certain things that if they were to make an artificial intelligence software to do some of the things that I have to do, I wouldn't be mad. For example, when someone is screening for mast cell tumor and they're looking in the spleen, so they'll send us a sample from an ultrasonographically normal spleen and we have to look through all this blood trying to find mast cells. And that's not really fun. So if AI wanted to do that, I would be all for it. But I don't think we're quite at that point yet. But I think it I think it will come and I think it will help. I don't think it'll necessarily replace pathologists. I think it'll make our jobs more streamlined and a little bit easier, hopefully. Well, absolutely, because even like in, in, in the context of that example, um, you know, the hope would be is that then the pictures could be taken of that, you know, that particular uh, mast cell that was located in that in that splenic fluid. And, mm-hmm. and and then you can kind of more, you know, assess and say, OK, is that, um, is that significant? So but interesting, I didn't realize the um, uh, the, the, the microscopes that maybe, um, yeah, I guess with like digital screens and the ability to zoom in and out that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of nice because I always picture um, you poor clinical pathologist in a dark room with a whole bunch of microscopes and um yeah <laughs> yeah not so much anymore which is nice but 
<laughs> I mean, there's pros and cons to being able to look or like to look at on glass, as we say, like you can focus up and down and sometimes okay. like infectious organisms. Like we had a cool fungal case recently and being able to focus up and down on those fungal organisms right. was really nice, which you lose with the digital cytology. But I think it'll only continue to improve, which is which is good. Yeah, and it allows a lot of like in-house um devices like there are some like scanners that are actually within clinics and so you can have your cytology sample stained and just uploaded quickly oh. into the cloud and have a pathologist get back to you in a, like within a couple hours oh wow that's that's incredible mm-hmm. yeah and that's something i mean certainly i've seen the ai technology more sort of for um diagnostic imaging so you know x-rays and stuff like that but i didn't think think about that um that how great that would be is if we can mm-hmm. take some pictures here and just send it um send it to the pathologist so really really interesting Excellent. Um, and so, uh, so tell me, so we've reviewed some of the different fluids and uh, different samples. Um, anything else you'd like to add for our listeners about what we can do to help get a better pathology report? Um, I think another thing you can do is follow up with your pathologist. So if we send you a report or a comment and it doesn't make sense with what you're seeing clinically, a lot of the time the pathologist's contact information is there we're very friendly people. We like you to are. we like to yeah. talk and we like to help you with your cases. And especially if it was really weird and interesting, I would highly recommend like reach, reaching out to the pathologist because they probably have as many questions as you do. And sometimes talking to them can help. Um, we're also for clinical pathology. We do a lot of um, like biochemistry training as part of our oh, residency okay. and it's part of our boards. Wow. So if you have like tough biochemical cases, even you can reach out to pathologists. Like they're happy to talk. About I, that with you. I did not know that. So mm-hmm. that's a, that's a tough subject. Yeah. So we do uh, let like we have our Tuesday rounds, which are cytology, and Thursday is biochemistry. So wow. Okay. Um, and then in terms of that, so so for our listeners who may want to go into pathology after vet school, so um, so you graduate as a veterinarian. Um, how does one become a pathologist? So it's pretty straightforward. You graduate as a veterinarian, you don't have to do an internship. You okay. can just apply straight into a pathology program, and there's no sort of formal match or anything like that. Okay, uh, and it's um, three at least three years, sometimes yes. longer. It's three years if you're doing a DVSC. It's supposed to be three years, and then if you switch into a PhD, it would be four to five usually. Okay, and then um, and then eventually you have to write what's called the pathology um, board exam. Mm-hmm. And what does that involve? So it actually has two parts. So there's phase one, which both anatomic and clinical pathology residents write, and that's sort of general pathology. Um, And so I'll be writing that in March, actually. So that's coming up. (laughs) I know, I'm not excited. (laughs) And then there's phase two, which you do at the end. And so that's specific to clinical or anatomic pathology. And that's where you sort of do more of your microscopy work. Okay. And then when, when did you or when do you pick whether you want to be an anatomic pathologist or a clinical pathologist? So you start out in one or the other. So when you okay. apply, you apply to either an okay. anatomic or a clinical residency. Okay. So you had to know well, like when you started, you said, mm-hmm. okay, I, w- I would like clinical pathology, yes. even though you have to have sort of both in that initial board exam. Mm-hmm. So what they have in common is sort of the underlying mechanisms and understanding, you know, the the molecular basis of inflammation and neoplasia and how that happens. But the difference is for clinical pathology, we're looking at like cytology, biochemistry, additional tests like protein electrophoresis, that kind of stuff. Whereas anatomic, they're looking at histopathology. So if you send a surgical biopsy or you have a postmortem done, it's the anatomic pathologist who's going to be looking at that. 
That's uh, that's amazing. Um, you are amazing. Um, I am <laughs> thinking about biochemistry, and it gives me the shivers. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> so that's uh, that's amazing. And uh, best of luck with your board exam. Thank you. Um, so thank you, Dr. Emma Stacy, for coming on uh, Vet Sessions today. Um, before we go, um, just wanted to mention that this episode of Vet Sessions is generously sponsored by OVC Pet Trust. OVC Pet Trust, founded in 1986 at the Ontario Veterinary College, is Canada's first charitable fund dedicated to improving and advancing companion animal health and well-being. OVC Pet Trust supports innovative discoveries, education, and healthcare that improve the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of diseases of pets. You can learn more about OVC Pet Trust at www.pettrust.ca, or you can connect with them on Instagram at the handle at OVC Pet Trust. So thank you again um, for for coming in, um, Dr. Stacey. I wish you the best with your board exam, and um, um, we'd love for you to come back and and talk more about um, clinical pathology. For those uh, listeners, uh, thank you very much for coming today. If you have any questions, um, you can certainly um, email us, vetsessions at hotmail.com, or you can check us out on Instagram at vetsessions. Thank you very much.